the David Cassidy Connections with Louise Poynton. Cherish the legacy. Hello, hello everyone and welcome to this very special episode in the David Cassidy Connections, your podcast all about David's influence and legacy. I'm your host, Louise Poynton, and today you are listening to episode 50. Thank you for downloading this podcast and remember to click that subscribe button so you can be alerted when new episodes are released. My very special guest today is Ron Hickling. He describes himself as a hidden star whose voice has featured as a background singer on thousands of recordings, around 100 number one hits, up to 400 movies, television themes including Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, Flipper, plus radio and television commercials. You will know the songs, the voice, but maybe not the singer. Ron rarely gives interviews, but today shares with me some of the highlights of his career, which has seen him working with some of the biggest stars on the planet, from Elvis to Michael Jackson, Andy Williams to the three tenors. The list is endless. He was also the voice of Alvin in The Chipmunks and a ghost singer with The Monkeys. He formed his musical group, the Ron Hickling Singers, in the 1960s. They were mostly anonymous studio singers but the most recorded vocals in history. They became the go-to backing vocalists for recording artists, the vocal equivalent of the studio musicians The Wrecking Crew. Despite their astonishing track record, the Ron Hickling singers are probably best known as the real singers behind the background vocals of The Partridge Family. When a new television sitcom series was suggested in 1969, Ron who had built up a reputation as a hitmaker, was taken on board to recruit the singers and create the sound of the Partridge family. The original idea was for the cast to lip-sync to the recordings, which would have been the standard for the franchise, until producers discovered that promising young actor David Cassidy could sing. They recognised a rare talent, handed him the lead vocals, and set him on a path which overnight made him an international superstar. Ron kept detailed notes about every recording session over the four-year run of the series, a breakdown of which can be found on the website comeongethappy.com. The link to this can be found in the accompanying show notes. But before we start our conversation, here are some of those recordings before and after David took over the lead vocals. Everybody's good in places, doing smiling faces. Look at all the smiling faces. Singing, having a ball, doing their number. Bird. 
For that once upon a love affair Your heart was warm, your lips were tender And I didn't care, baby Here is my conversation with Ron Hickling. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Oh, it is lovely to see you. Is is it too bright in this room or is everything okay? No, everything's great. That's cool. Yeah, we still have daylight here. Oh, yeah. Well, it's only about 78 degrees here. (laughs) That would be mega hot for us. (laughs) (laughs) It's golf weather for us. Besides working most of my career in the Los Angeles area, uh, we also have a second home in Hawaii. (laughs) So we go from when it gets too hot here to over there to where it's still hot. So there you go. (laughs) How long have you had that place? Uh, We bought that in 2014 and and, uh, we're right on the ocean here. We're right on, uh, we have a most magnificent view, probably the best in the the valley down here because we look across three golf courses and nobody can build on the other side. So we look straight across the golf courses at the mountains behind them and they're snow covered. And so it's beautiful. And then in Hawaii, we're right on the ocean. So we have the, the ocean view there. And we like that so much. A, a year, two years later, I bought that place next door. Yes. Well, it's so good of you to give, give me your time today to talk about these golden years, not only of your career, but also that wonderful period with the Partridge family. There was life before the Partridge family, and there's obviously been a very productive life after it. But before we go back to move forward, can you tell me if you ever thought at the time working on the Partridge family, whether you were actually creating something really special? It's an interesting question, but the answer, the answer was I was dedicated to that from the very first job I did in the studios. I realized that there was a lot of talent in Hollywood that would come from all over the world. And I auditioned and listened to everybody that came into town because I always wanted to walk into the studios with the best talent I could, mainly to guarantee that it was a successful session. And if it was a successful session, then I would probably guarantee my career to come back for the next one, for the next one, for the next one. And and as long as I did number one records and things like that after my first number one record, it became one of those things where I was number one in the industry and people were hiring me 
to get me and then I would hire the, the best group for the uh, situation. So in answer to your question, uh, nothing changed um, as far as my attitude. My attitude was, here's what we're doing today. And, uh, and we're gonna do the best we know how to do to make sure that that's a success to guarantee our career uh, of coming back. Because as anonymous people uh, and working for scale, they could have hired anybody. And if you're not producing, if you're difficult to deal with, if of all of those other things, if you have a bad attitude, uh, it doesn't matter what your talent is, you're just not back. But if you constantly are doing hit records for people and hit projects all the way down the line, uh, the people who do know your name are the insiders in the industry and they keep calling you to try to make their th situation uh, work. Mm. That's it. Did it ever bother you that people never knew who you were? Not at all. It, in fact, it was a chosen situation because uh, when I came down from the Un University of Washington where I was uh, in pre-med and I came down and Capitol Records signed uh, my group that I formed when I was 11 years old. Uh, and so we were signed with Capitol Records and it was a seven year contract that we signed at the same time as Glenn Campbell and a few of us all signed together. Mm. And I was about two years into it and realized this isn't what I wanna do. I don't want to be on stage doing choreography, doing the same songs over and over, uh, how boring. Uh, what I love to do was to sing. As far as getting in front of a crowd and being witty and carrying a, on a great dialogue or do a st stuff like that, that wasn't who I was. I was very shy. And, and even though I was the lead singer in the group, I felt like I wanted to uh, just sing the song. My, my whole career, I thought when I got involved is if you were going to be a singer, uh, you were either a recording artist or you were a teacher. Uh, and I, I came from a long line of teachers, uh, my, my, my mom and dad, my brother, everybody, and six aunts were all teachers. And I was the student. I was the, the one that was getting the best grades and all that stuff, except I had this God-given talent that I decided I got to give this a shot. And the shot turned out to be a little different from what our preconceived idea of what uh, what a singer did. I became a technician with my singing and I loved working in the studios because I worked with all the giants in the industry and I had my pick of, of hiring all the talent that I auditioned and putting together successful things and just uh, working, you know, from that anonymous way of working to where we were running from one job to the next. I, the most I ever did in one day was seven sessions in a day. And when I quit working and I was averaging up to five sessions a day and people would say to me, you know, how many sessions did you do? And I'd say, well, about five sessions, up to five sessions a day. And people would say, we don't do that in a month now. Uh, so. The, the era in which I recorded and the stuff that we did and the success that we had doing it uh, was unique. And so 
No. Did I enjoy? Did I want anything other than that? No. I was absolutely perfectly cast to be uh, an objective individual in the studio that always went to hire the best, do the best, uh, move on to the next project and keep that career going as long as I could. Your career is just so illustrious. I mean, it's an A to Z of the superstars of the industry. You've worked with everybody. You can you could pick out anyone, I suppose, from Frank Sinatra to Darlene Love. All, all the way across the board for yeah. a long period of time. Yeah. Yeah. You might be aware that I just finished a, a Basically, it was an hour and a half presentation I was asked to do in Palm Springs here. Every year they do something called Modernism Week. And it's really about architecture. But they, but because of all the stars and stuff that came to uh, Palm Springs, you had uh, the, the Dean Martins and the, and the uh, Sinatras, all of these things that uh, uh, this settling colony of, of uh, Hollywood stars that were down here their architecture and all that. So they asked me to do something which was regarding most of that same time period, but it was a departure. It was about the music business. They said, Ron Hicklin, the most famous voice you've never heard of, very much involved in just trying to, um, uh, trying to figure out how I could take 40 some years of top of the line recording and hits all the hits and um and the motion pictures up to 400 motion pictures and academy awards and all these things and commercials and main titles and television shows and everything else and how do you jam that into an hour and a half and the answer is you don't uh you just have to to skim over the highlights and I kept saying, this is uh, Mr. Toad's wild ride, because I would just, I would just try to hit a few highlights and say, and, and you know, but it, it was an enlightening experience for, for everybody involved, because I had a chance to just go on stage and just talk about these wonderful years of what we did and who we did it with and, and all of that stuff. So people find, they, gather about around the subject of celebrity uh those of us that did what we did never considered ourselves celebrities but we worked right uh hand to hand with the the celebrities that we were recording with so mm -hmm. it was it was an, a wonderful time and and uh and i blessed the the day that i decided i just like to work in the studios and just uh do this thing and a lot of people would like to do that, but the competition is so tough in an area like, like um, Los Angeles. There were just people from all over the world and it, it behooved me to know what everybody could do yeah. and to walk in. And once I even had a call from Paramount and they said, can you get me a Danish folk singer? I said, yeah because I had designed a program to everybody that talked to me and wanted to do the business. I would spend time talking to them about it, uh, asking them to be aware of what was in the marketplace, who their competition was, uh, what they needed to do to be special. And then I would find out their reading, their sight reading capabilities, the languages they could sing in, 
the uh, sound-alike abilities they had, uh, their ranges, all of that stuff and all their preferences. And I would put it in the computer. So if, if, Columbia, if uh, Paramount said, I need a Danish folk singer, I gave them a name and they, were, and they had the job. And that was it. So I was prepared to, to answer whatever call was coming in. Because you, the Ron Hickling singers, you were the go-to group. Yes. Uh, basically, in Hollywood, there was a, an instrumental group uh, called the Wrecking Crew that, that played everything. I mean, they, they did the Mamas and Papas, or they did the uh, uh, Gary Lewis and the Playboys, or they did uh, Gary Puck and the Union Gap, or they did everything that you could be mentioning, and including... Mm-hmm. Uh, the Partridge family, the monkeys, and, and all this stuff. So uh, basically, I was known because I was the, those were the instrumentalists, Hal Blaine and and Denny Tedesco, and all these people, and Glenn Campbell. These were those were the instrumentalists that were called the Wrecking Crew, that were the backbone of the recording industry in Hollywood. And I my group was the uh, vocal version of the same thing everything that they did we were singing on or i was singing on and and had different casts that i would bring in with me i recently just a couple of weeks ago happened to see butch cassidy again on oh yes Uh now the south american getaway just sends shivers down your spine i'm not a singer i can't sing a sing a note i am tone deaf but how did you get such a wonderful voice? How does anybody get a wonderful voice, but you in particular? You know, I'll give you just a brief background on that, on the, what uh, Bert did there. Bert Bacharach uh, called me and asked me to come up to his place in, um, in the hills. And I, I went up and met with him. And he was still married to Angie Dickinson at that point. And so I went into his place and he sat down with a movie over there and he said, I'm, I'm writing something here that I think that would be really good for the uh, Swingle singers. During this uh, movie, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, they're d- down in Bolivia and they're robbing one bank after another. And for like five minutes, there's no dialogue. There's just singing. And he said, so I'm trying to write something and I'd like you to work with me on it. I'm writing it for the uh, Swingle singers. I said, well, why are you doing it? with the Swingle Singers. I said, I can get better voices than that. And he said, you can, well, let's do it. So we went into the studio and I had Sally Stevens uh, and Jackie Ward and Sue Allen were the girls. And then John Baylor and myself, Gene Morford and uh, Thurl Ravenscroft, who was Tony the Tiger. Uh, and so <laughs> it's great, you know, to, for all those years that uh, Thurl did that. And so I put that group together and we went in and we sight read it with Bert at 20th Century Fox and we recorded it for the movie. I loved the recording we did for the movie. Uh, later, Bert went into A&M Studios and wanted to do it over again for the record. And I didn't think it was as good as it was for the movie. Anyway, we did that. And I, I appreciate your, your kind comments about uh, oh, uh, what you did here there, because we did win the Academy Award on that uh, picture as far as the music was concerned. 
uh, also uh, raindrops falling on your head with that BJ Thomas was also in there and I worked with BJ too. your life story yet you know that's a a really nice question because for a long time uh in my in my home in in pasadena i had a three-car garage that had 13 file cabinets in it that were triple deck file cabinets all the way across the back of the garage and in those file cabinets were all these session reports on records uh motion pictures, television, everything that we did, who was on it, what we made, uh, what the titles were, the process of the recording on everything. And when people were writing books, I was so busy working that when people were writing books, let's say on Presley or something, and they would call and they would say, did you do a session uh, with Elvis? I said, I did three pictures and a whole bunch of sessions with Elvis. And they said, uh, well, we have a question about, I said, well, first of all, you'll have to give me the date. If you give me the year, then I can look up because everything's in chronological order. And I said, so I'll look it up and find out and then I can give you. And so I would give them all these reports. Uh, when I retired, I didn't know what to do with myself. Uh, so I sat down and I thought a lot of the things that I do have the oxide and the tape would come off or whatever it was just from age. So if I was going to play them, I'm going to play them once and transfer them into, um, in, into my computer, into digital form, and then put them into iTunes or something. So I did. Uh, I started transferring all this stuff across. Uh, and I realized that one of the byproducts of that is I can also take all those contracts and get rid of all that paperwork by transferring all of that stuff into the computer. So I did. And the byproduct was when people were writing books and they said, did you do something with Elton John or whatever it was? And I'd say, just a second. And I would just put search Elton and bam, everything I did would come up or all of this stuff then became real easy. But regarding your question, did I ever consider writing the book? I was in the book on Gary Lewis and the Playboys right up to my neck in there because I did everything. I sang everything with Gary. So, and that was my first hit record. And a Gary Puckett and Union Gap, all those hits, uh, doing stuff with the Beach Boys, doing stuff with uh, various members of the Beatles, doing stuff uh, with the Partridge family, the monkeys. I was the guy with the monkeys, uh, two, uh, two other two, two of the original members and me. I said, all of those things became books, every one of them. And the, the interesting thing, and what was always driving me 
is all those were subjects about one particular thing. Mine, if I had done it, would have been about all of them because I was a part of all of them. It was much deeper. It was like walking in to do a motion picture with James Horner, which I did all of James's uh, stuff. So everything that James was doing, Titanic or Braveheart or all these things that I did with James represents his viewpoint on, on music his his artistry uh but then i can walk in on the next session and do lalo shippen and do the three tenors and do all that stuff and then i can walk in on the next session and do burt Bacharach and do all of those things then i walk in on the next session and i'm doing john williams and all of those things and i'm and these are the these are the giants that i was working with and i was their vocal go-to guy so I could put all that stuff, whatever their dreams were together. And so when I looked at my own idea of writing a book, it would have encompassed not just one direction, the way a lot of these other books, but all of the directions, because I was apart from Streisand to Sinatra to Dean to Sammy Davis Jr. to all the way through to Elton uh, to all the stuff I did with Ben Campbell and, and other things with Michael Jackson, uh, all of these different bags, musical bags, were represented. And you sit there and say, well, this would have been a fascinating book. I don't want to go that deep in the subject and work my can off just, just for what, you know, because uh, anonymity is beautiful. You can rest on having done a good job and you can rest on the money you made doing it and just be left absolutely alone. (laughs) You can go out to the restaurants and you can go into the bank. Yes, and and the the quick answer to people are still pressing, and I said before my thing in Palm Springs, I said, you know, anybody that I would, that would even recall what we did, right now has either probably got Alzheimer's or or uh, has passed on. So I'm not sure what my audience would be. (laughs) But with all your music, a whole new generation are discovering your music. I got a call in Hawaii about three years ago, and they said, "Uh, we're doing a motion picture, and we'd like to use your Batman theme. I said, okay. Uh, I said, I can tell you who was on it, and if you give us uh, the appropriate scale for it, you can use it. That's fine. And they said, they said, it was for, for this picture called uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I decided I'd better I'd better see that. So I decided I'd, I'd go in and see that picture. And I was so shocked because it was about 1968. And it was about the Sharon Tate and the whole, uh, the, the whole episode with Manson and all of that stuff that went through uh, uh, Hollywood. I walked into that picture not realizing what the subject matter was. But the time, 1968, she was on camera in Westwood, uh, where UCLA is, and the marquee on the on the uh, motion picture behind her, the marquee on the motion picture theater behind her, said, "The Wrecking Crew," starring Dean Martin. And I said, "Yeah, I did all the music with that, uh, with Hugo Montenegro." And then uh, she crossed the street, and on the other side, it was a movie theater, and it said. A Lady in Cement with Frank Sinatra. And I said, yeah, I did all the music of that too. Uh, with with Dean Martin, with, uh, with uh, Hugo again. And then Robert Goulet comes on the air, on the radio in the, 
in the scene that they were doing. And I said, I did that record with him. Uh, and then it goes on and on and then all the way through to where they're using the Batman thing. And all the way through that picture, I said, my God, all of that stuff was coming down. And I was running around the clock, averaging at least 18 hours a day, going night and day, doing all this stuff. And I didn't have any any time to get in any trouble at all because I was just working constantly. Everything that was being done, I was, I was doing. So it was an interesting memory jog just seeing that picture. There's so many areas of your career that I'd like to touch on, but okay. um, it's interesting that the first recording session that you did with the Partridge family was as early as December the 18th, 1969. Yeah, no, I just wonder if you can talk me through the process of how okay, the Partridge I, I, family... I can, I can. Uh, the Partridge family, I'm, I'm just going to give you a small preface before I hit that point. I had done all of the, the monkeys. It was uh, David and Mickey and me. And the last one I did, last record I did with them was just a year after their show went off and I did Valerie with just David and me as a duet. And it went to number one. But I had a problem with Columbia Pictures, which was Cold Gems. And they were the producers of the uh, of the Monkees. All of the hit records and everything else that I had done, they didn't pay me for the television show. They only paid me for the record. There should be a record and there should be a television, two different contracts. Because I did everything from the main title, everything. So... Uh, when I was done with them, I said, you know, the show's off the air, but you never paid me for any of the shows. They made a deal with Screen Actors Guild to give me $1,250 for all time. And I thought, well, <laughs> that isn't even a recording scale. I said, I cannot believe that. And the Screen Actors Guild went along with it. So this put me kind of in a, in a headlock with uh, Columbia Pictures. So the next time... I think they didn't want to ever use me again as a result of me objecting to that. So the next thing to happen is the Partridge family. They contact Shorty Rogers to, to uh, write arrangements and to, uh, to put a, a session together. Shorty calls me <laughs> and said, Ron, we're going to do this uh, pilot. And uh, Shirley Jones is, uh, is um, starring in it. And we would like you to um, uh, put the voices together. And I said, okay, Shorty, listen, I had a problem with Columbia. I don't want to be singing with stars because although people are wonderful talents or whatever they're hired to do, they're not right for the market or they're not uh, going to reach a certain demographic that we have to reach. And therefore, I want to just furnish the voices myself and we'll just go in and we'll do it. So Shorty said, okay, come on in. So I brought in a group of people, John Baylor, Tom Baylor, Jackie Ward. I actually brought in Sally Stevens and I brought in uh, a couple of other voices with me, Stan Farber. But we went in and we did the initial stuff. And then uh, Shorty later called me and said, Ron, there's, there's great news. Now this is, according to the dates that you have put together mm, there. Uh -huh. uh, mm -hmm. uh, Shorty then called me later and said, Ron, good news and bad news. I said, what's the good news? He said, the good news 
is that the pilot sold. It's got the highest rating since Mission Impossible. So it's a go. And I said, well, what's the bad news? He says, the bad news is they're letting him go. And I said, why is that? He said, because they don't think that he, as a jazzer, can reach the market that he has to reach in, in pop recording. And almost the same logic I was saying, why, you know, Shirley Jones is a wonderful, wonderful singer and actress, but she's more aimed at musical comedy uh, or musical uh, stage uh, musicals like Carousel and, and Oklahoma and things like that. She's just absolutely perfect for that. But as far as reaching the, the teen uh, market, no, I don't think so. So it, that was my attitude. And so I understood that they were, they were pulling back on Shorty because they felt like they needed a record producer that was more attuned to the market. So that was the deal. Then the next thing I heard is now they were going to let me go too. And they were going to let me go because of the history that I'd had in objecting to being used in a manner that they, that they weren't even rewarding us for with, with the Columbia Pictures. Going forward, the reason I wanted John there with me, John and Tom and I all had the same range very similar approach to our music and everything else. I was pro probably closer to the street or understanding the demographic than the other people were. And that's the reason I'd had the successes that I had by myself. The other thing is John was such a good writer. And I'm talking about arranging mm -hmm. and an excellent singer. Tom, on the other hand, I had envisioned Tom writing material writing songs. In my mind, when I put the group together, I had envisioned getting to the point where John was doing the arranging for the group as well as singing. Tom would be writing songs for the group as well as singing. And I would just handle the, the production end of it with, with the group. Uh, Jackie was along for the ride because Jackie was needed in the sound, but I wasn't expecting anything other than, than Jackie just giving her best the same way I would. That was what I envisioned. What was then coming down is they, they figure out, they get rid of me, then they can tell everybody what to do and they can keep the same people and all that and they tell everybody what to do. The other people did not go along with this. The other singers did not go along with this. So basically, I was back in. But the rest of the thing came to fruition. John was doing the arrangements and stuff like this. But somewhere, they almost ripped my heart out with that, that thing. And I realized what it was, was it was this uh, corporate thing uh, coming down from Columbia Pictures that I was going to be difficult to deal with. They tried it. By the way, when we when the show had we done five straight gold albums, when the show had finally run its course, I will tell you before I get there that right after we started, there's this unknown uh, element that's entering into it, and that's David Cassidy. David turned out to be a, a, a good singer. Uh, not only that, he was the front the front man for the entire group as far as visually which none of us were even, you know, we're never going to be on camera. We're never going to do anything. And it wasn't believable that we could even be those people that were on camera. However, we created a sound and David became that lead singer that could reach that demographic. And therefore it became David and the four of us. And that's the way we recorded. And after doing five straight gold albums uh, and the project was done, 
we still looked and decided, you know what? We were paid for the records, but we were never paid for the television show, ever. So uh, re, the re-emergence of, of Ron Hicklin comes in and, and the other singers didn't know what to do about it. And I said, what have I got to lose, you know, with, with Columbia? Because they already tried to blackball me once for standing up on the, the all the work that I had done as an individual with the monkeys. So now I'm back into this fight. And I thought I thought and I did a like a 28 page brief on all the songs that we did when we did them, what shows they were on and all that stuff. And I think I sued or threatened suit against uh, Columbia Pictures for about one hundred and sixty thousand dollars for what they would owe us. And we won it. We collected it and they had to go along with it. And then uh, I distributed a, a quarter to each of us. And that was it. Right. So th that's part of the story that's that's not known. But it was one of the things that I said, uh, of all the projects I did, of all the hits I did, I was so proud of the success that we had there, but so disappointed sometimes in the dealings behind the uh, behind uh, to where I felt like I was walking a plank on something that I had created into the into the beginning and and now suddenly I'm relegated to just coming in and doing the best I can which yeah. is what I was always geared to do anyway yeah it was a but it was so a case wasn't it of the partridge laying the golden egg yeah and yeah. a lot of people benefited from it. it. The merchandise was all out there. It was David. I mean, it was David. When we first went in, you know, we were wrapping the capstan with like a quarter inch, just to, now that's a technical term, but it makes a tape run at a little wow. different speed. And the same way when I did the chipmunks, it's like, okay, uh, uh, is that our real voice? No, it, you know, we record the tracks at 30 inches per second. We record us at 15 inches per second, which is very difficult to do. And then we speed the tracks back up and they're perfect, but our voices go up an octave. Well, we were doing a little bit of maneuvering with, with David's voice, but just very in, infinitesimal. But when you do that, suddenly the, it, it youthifies the voice just a little bit. And uh, for those reasons, yeah, we were, uh, we were commercially going after stuff and creating a sound and it worked. It wouldn't have worked without David. David was the whole uh, visual aspect of everything as well as the lead singer. So, uh, but that's, that's the way I look at my entire career is I was coming in, uh, I didn't create Sinatra or I didn't create uh, Pavarotti or anything, any of this, but if I came in to work with them, I came in to be a comedian that tried to make them look better. Uh, I came in to know that they were reaching a demographic, a specific demographic, and what we had to do is understand that demographic and hit them right where they live. And that's what we tried to do vocally yeah. uh, on all the projects. So mm. that's the way it was. But I had that talent. I had that mindset that I, I just want to be a part of something good. I don't want to be the guy. I just want to be a part of something good. And I used to watch the, the, the show uh, Chorus Line. Yeah. And I, I saw that about five times and where other people are, are getting different emotions. I'm sitting here with tears in my eyes 
because I realized that what I always wanted to do was just to sing. So in essence, if you look at the chorus line and say, there's people that want to dance. Well, what I wanted to do was to sing. But once my career started elevating and all the companies I built and all of the successes and stuff I had, I had found myself in that position that where I was putting it all together. I was making it all happen. I was hiring myself as a singer. But to the rest of the industry, I was this hidden star that nobody would hire just to sing with them on their thing. And so I would look at Chorus Line and inside my heart was bleeding because I was saying, I just wanted to hang on to a star and be there, be part of that. Mm. But in doing so, I had raised myself to a position where I was that inside the studios, I was that star. And now everybody's hanging on to me and I didn't really want to be in charge. Mm. I wanted to make everything work. And I had a different mindset than most artists. I could sit down and write contracts. I could sit down and negotiate. I could sit down and do all this other stuff that we didn't have agents. I didn't want agents. I wanted to just say, this is who we are. This is what we do. Fill out the W-4 contract and send it in and leave this hit on the, on the tape. That's what we try to do. So those kinds of things, those deep thoughts about, well, uh, was there any moments? Yeah, the moment was all I ever wanted to do was sing. That's it. I ended up hiring myself a lot because I was the right voice and I'd find the right spot to put myself in. If it was a girl's trio, I was singing middle girl. I was there. I was doing it from the inside out. And that's where it happened. It is a truly wonderful gift, you know, to listen to any of your harmonies or any of your voice, your your lead singing voice, the chipmunks to the yes. Partridge family. You have been so adaptable to everything that you've ever done. And in many ways, you've had the Midas touch. Everything that has come your way has turned to gold. Back in those days, I wanted to teach the public what good was. What a hell of a mistake that is. What I learned was you're not going to take the same people that like country over here and that like soul over here. And you're going to teach these people uh, what good is because they have their own definition of what they like. And that's who you're trying to appeal to. So what you want to do is let go of your own concept about what you're going to teach everybody. Uh, you're going to make them, discipline them to a, understand and appreciate everything that you think is right no what you have to do is you have to go from the, the street up and you have to sit there and say this is why they like this this is what is appealing about this to this group of people or this one over here or whatever it is and you can study it and you can sit there and say okay i understand totally why that's a success so when i'm doing that i'm going to surround myself with people who do that I'm going to surround myself with an understanding of what I'm trying to prove at this particular point, who I'm trying to reach. The only thing that is immovable in my, in my uh, situation is I'm going to control that best effort. We're going to make that best effort going in that direction to reach that demographic. And that I'm going to do. 
and then I'm not gonna let go because my career is being recorded. Every mistake, everything, if there's a mistake there, I don't want it out there. If there's something that I don't like the tuning on, I don't want it out there. Uh, whatever it is, I'm going to make sure that uh, that sound from us is something I approve of while we try to reach that demographic. And by God, we did that. We moved from one area to another to another, with sometimes with different personnel, but we still did it honestly. It's like sitting down and saying, okay, are you going to take the same things you do with Sinatra, the same people, and do rap? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Are you going to reach them? Yeah. You're going to reach them because you're going to go with the something that's authentic, something that, that hits them right where they live. So all of it is the inside knowledge of saying, how do I reach this? How do I get this job done? And then go do it. And David was really nice to work with as far as, but, you know, again, the, the leads and stuff were put down before that. So, yes. and, and the first time I met Shirley, as a matter of fact, I was 19 years old and I was doing, uh, it was actually the second uh, movie of my career. It was a music man and Shirley was starring in it. And I thought, oh God, what? What a wonderful talent, wow. you know, very attractive. She probably had a 22 inch waist, you know, and I'm looking at her and thinking, oh God, she's a beautiful, very talented lady and, uh, and perfect for that kind of a, that kind of a career. Yes. And that's a, that's a reason somewhere I always have to mention that because later when I'm making decisions, no, we don't want to sing with the stars uh, because they're not right for the demographic we're trying to reach. But are they a talent? Oh, God, yes, yes. Would she be somebody you wanted in the group with you every week doing backgrounds? No, no, it's not the same thing. Like saying, uh, you know, to uh, to Frank Sinatra, do you want to do backgrounds with me? I can get you all the work. You <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. <laughs> so, I mean, in, on that fir those first recording sessions, before they realized that David could sing, you'd laid down let the good times in yes and uh -huh. together having a ball there was a huge influence on this music that was being created under the partridge family umbrella of the love generation which john and tom were made were major parts of i was in charge and i wasn't trying to do the love generation it's just that i was trying to do what i do in, in hiring the voices john and tom being a part of the love generation that that would speak to possibly th that sound aspect but it was also like everything else i was doing at the time i i was putting together the best voices i could for that project how did you know tom and, and john and and sally okay well sally in the beginning of my career i was doing shindig and i had my own a group and everything else and we were doing two two times a week we were doing national stuff and backing all the british invasion uh backing all the uh, motown stuff doing everything doing all this backing on the shows darling love and the blossoms were on one side and my group was on the other and we were doing all this stuff and then doing our own act as well all the people I worked with there, Leon Russell and Glenn Campbell and, and everybody else, all became, you know, their own stars and everything else out of that show. The bottom line was I was doing that show, but we were still, you know, struggling people, young talents in the business. And I got a call at home saying, you know, we're trying to record this kid. Can you come down and and uh, and help us? So, and it was from Leon Russell and uh, Snuff Garrett. 
and Bones Howe was uh, mixing and he did the Mamas and Papas. So anyway, I went down uh, to the session and they were recording this kid and it was, uh, and I listened to it and I said, well, I'll put a harmony part on in the bridge with him. So they said, okay, do that. So I did it. And then Bones Howe yelled from the group booth. He said, why don't you sing the lead with him and try to smooth out his voice a little bit. So Gary and I did the leads together. Uh, just singing in unison. Then I put on harmony parts and then put the record out and it was this diamond ring. It went to number one. That was my first number one record. Before I knew it, a check shows up in the mail and it's got Jerry Lewis's uh, caricature on it. And I thought, oh my God, I, that must be his son. Because the check was saying, thank you for everything you did for my son. And here's $25 <laughs> for a number one record. <laughs> and I, I needed the money so bad. I didn't frame the record or I did check or anything. I just cash a check said oh my god but from that point on the the established sound was me singing lead with gary and then doing all the background parts myself so i did count me in then save your heart for me and just my style and uh, and so i did like 10 straight uh, top 10 records right there then i quit working with gary and he went off the charts in answer to your question my reputation started there and so everybody then was trying to hire who the hit maker was and stuff. And so as my credits started causing me to work like five sessions a day, first time I heard John sing, I contacted John and I said, John, if, if you want to work with me, I can guarantee you, you can make like $50,000 in the first year. And I will give you enough work to make sure that you're doing that. And so John said, sure, I'd. I do it because I respected the fact that John was a good musician, could sight read. He had the same range as me. And part of it down deep in my heart felt like I'm not going to ignore good talent, even if they do the same thing I do. Because if I if I ignore it, then they'll be maybe even replacing me. I'd rather have him right there with me, be my best friend, be my whatever it is. And so I put John to work right away. I still refer to him as my brother, you know, so we did everything together. I pulled him under my wing. I kept him there. I kept a bear hug on him. I was still upgrading the talent. And so once I did that, John said to me at one point, he said, you know, my brother sings. I said, okay, we'll bring him down. And so Tom came in. Tom, again, had a similar range as, as uh, John and myself. So we were interchangeable things except I would sing lead in, in the more pop-oriented things, and John would sing lead in the more jazz-oriented things. And I was doing all this Beach Boys high stuff and Four Seasons stuff and uh, Little Darlings, because my voice was ideal for reaching that kind of stuff. So we worked together, uh, and I would hire different versions of whoever was available. And many times they got projects that I had started 
but I wasn't going to leave town for anything. And they were going to go on the road or something. And they, they would go on the road and take over a project that I had started because I wouldn't leave the studios. And that's, a, that's kind of the way it evolved. But in the beginning, the first time I was asked to hire women, I thought, well, you know, uh, Sally was the same age as me and I knew her and I would hire Sally and I would hire Jackie. These guys later all met the girls that I used, Sally and Jackie and Sue Allen and different people that I would use. And I was researching the girls as well, thinking I was actually discovering people that had been there even before me. We had wonderful groups going in and doing stuff. So uh, the way they met uh, Sally and Jackie was through me. The cream of the crop became the cream of the crop. The, the first year they awarded uh, most valuable male singer in in Naris, uh, in the studio. They had the, the MVP awards. And the first year they had it, I won most valuable male singer. And the same thing the next year. Jackie won most valuable female singer. And then Sally ended up getting one. And Tom Baylor ended up getting one. Uh, and, you know, and it kind of went on down the line. All of that kind of started through the same uh, same source. And I was there trying to uh, clear down to when I started my own companies and stuff and then built them up, Killer Music and Killer Tracks, and became uh, built uh, four or five studios from my own work. Part of the, the beauty of my anonymity is I also, nobody calls me anymore. If, did, <laughs> if they did, it would be regarding work. And so I went for years owning a, owning a cell phone but never carrying one. Uh, so nobody could knew my number and nobody called me anyway. So when wow. something comes in, it's just spam. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> when you said earlier on about your parents being teachers, in many ways, you are a teacher to all the you've worked John with. Baylor, John Baylor said that to me once. John said, uh, my God, he said, working with you, he said, I got to tell you, now this is a football thing. The Dallas Cowboys for all the first years of their, for, for 20 some years had one coach and it was Tom Landry. And he was a success of building the Dallas Cowboys to being America's team at that point in, in history. And John said to me at one point, he said, I gotta tell you, he said, working with you is like working with Tom Landry. He said, you have such an insight into what is commercial and what will reach the demographic and all that stuff. And he said, uh, Joe Pizzullo, who had a wonderful hit record of uh, Never Gonna Let You Go, uh, which was under the title of uh, Sergio Mendes, and Brazil 66, but it was Joe singing it. And I said to Joe, oh my God, you're such a wonderful talent. The first time I hired him to do a commercial, he came in knowing of my own perfectionist nature through the industry. He said, oh my God. He said, I came in. He said, I didn't read music and I was expecting that if this didn't go well, I was going to be saying, do you want fries with that? <laughs> and I said, <laughs> I said to Joe, and he said, when I met you, I found out I was working with the nicest guy. Uh, and he said, not only that, uh, you knew how to direct. And I said, the reason I knew how to direct is because of all the years standing on microphone and I knew what I wanted to give to something. And all you have to do is cast the job correctly, bring the right people in and get the hell out of the way and let them be brilliant because they want to be. 
they want to be. So allow them the space to be somebody special. And that's what I tried to do as a director or a producer, uh, as well as my own singing. I hate to get too deep in this and I won't, but I will tell you that when I walked into a session, I had to know all the people that I had hired. I had to know what drove them. I had to know where their egos lie. I had to make sure that some people their personalities were so strong that I had to treat them a little differently than I did others. Because uh, John is a good example. If he went south on you with his attitude, it could turn the whole session around. So John was always right here with me. He was, I was holding on to John like mad to make sure that I could feed his ego and make him feel uh, like he was contributing. His ideas meant something to me and all that stuff. Uh, because as being in charge, I could always take the outside influences, digest them in myself and make a decision on what I wanted to do. But there was never any competitive thing of saying, I, because it's coming from somebody else, I don't want that to be what we're doing. I realized even if I disagreed with something, I would have to feed it to somebody because I was dealing with such a powerful individual anyway that they could turn the thing upside down if, if they weren't uh, 100% committed to being with you and stuff. Mm -hmm. So there was personalities that I was dealing with all the time. And I understood those really well. That's the reason I think it was beyond the musical aspect of stuff. Absolutely. Do you believe that everyone has a strength and that you were, build, you were finding their strengths and yes. bringing them out so that... Yes, yes. And I do believe that, that with some people in the room, I felt I could do anything. I felt dynamic. I felt... I felt funny, I felt uh, intelligent, I felt creative, I felt everything else. And with other people in the room, I felt like it was a total drain of and sapping of my energy. Yeah. Mm. It's about man management. But at the end of the day, you've all got to be pardon the pun singing from the same sheet. Yes. And yes. if you've got any weak link, that's soon going to be recognized. So then you have to establish why is that person the weak link? How can yeah. I make them stronger and bring them back in? The best part I can say in my career is because I did my homework. I made sure that the people I bring I brought in, I didn't have to make something special. They were something special. Well, they had the best coach in the business. No, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> If we could talk about the Partridge family recording sessions, because obviously everything changed once they realised that David had an extremely good and unique singing voice. I'm not a musician. I'm not a singer. I've never worked in record production. But going back to 1969, 1970, those first sessions, how do you put a hit record together? How does a recording happen? Because I'm wondering if you ever worked with David in the studio at the same time, or if he lays down his vocals and then you come in and do yours. Can you explain how that works? Uh, yes, I would be normally in most of the situations, I would be working within the mix structure, mixing later to get the sound right, to, to doing all the things that I did for nothing, uh, just to make sure that what we were doing was a hit. 
the Partridge family is unique from the standpoint that I did not, because of, of what they tried to do to me in the beginning, I did not get involved in any of that. I said, okay, I'll come in, I'll sing the song, I'll give my opinion, and that's it. And so at that point, the pieces that I put together originally were more involved in that. John was probably more involved with that working with with David or working with uh, getting the arrangement together and stuff like that. What I uh, limited myself to was to listen to playbacks and to say, oh, we can do better than that, or we can do this, or we can do that, uh, or I hear something here that's not right. Uh, and then we would do it that way. But David was already recorded when we would walk in, when uh, Jackie and I and Tom and and John would walk in to do our backgrounds. David was already recorded. And then we would just put on the backgrounds to complement that. Uh, one thing that you probably are aware of, but I'm not sure that you're aware of, but having talked to the other people in the group, uh, they may have told you this, but in the first big record, I think I love you. Now that was a big, big uh, number one record. So uh, as we did that, we listened to David voice and the low part in that bridge turnaround he didn't have those notes he couldn't sing those notes they were below his range he was kind of struggling with that and so tom and i actually dubbed in those voices on those low notes as we got there you know don't know what to talk about you know anyway we were down there doing that and it just kind of like blends into what's happening and then uh and then david's you know right back into it Little things like that uh, were put together, but most of the time it was not, it was only on that one record where I felt like we ever really had to uh, augment David's voice in any particular manner other than what we were doing as a vocal group behind him. When you were first recording, I Think I Love You, uh -huh. did you know that was going to be a, a hit with your previous experience of working? No. You know, the, the whole thing is the vehicle. I didn't know David at that point. I didn't know what a, you know, on-screen personality he was or, or anything else. And to this day, I say the successes that we had as the Partridge family would not have happened without David. Uh, David was the lead sound. David was the biggest thing since Presley, as far as I'm concerned. When he hit the market, it was the vehicle that they needed to be commercial. And so uh, what we did was we created a sound around that, that became the Partridge family. Without that vehicle, David wouldn't have had the opportunity to do what he's doing. Uh, so all of that was a perfect time in history to, to fall together of all those pieces. So it didn't matter whether everybody uh, thought, I like the material we're doing, 
or this and that and the other thing. It was, this is the job we're trying to do. And as far as I was concerned, I didn't give most of my career. If somebody came up, if an artist came up to me and said, what do you think of this song? I found my way to dance around that so easily. I wasn't hired to bring that artist in. I wasn't hired to write that song. I was hired for one reason, and that was to, to put together the best performance we could to reach the demographic we were trying to reach. And that's exactly where my attitude was. I was going to say, I can only control our performance. The marketing, all the rest of it, that's not my gig. And so I was really objective, and I think it worked so well for me because I was so objective that I stayed out of everybody's way and did what I did. And what I did was try to bring in the best vocal sound that reached those people, make love to the mic, right through to the people we were trying to reach, and have them love and appreciate what we'd done. Whether I knew in advance any more about whether this song is going to be successful is anybody's guess. So many times I had done things that I said, I don't know why you're releasing that one before you're releasing this one. We did three hits. I did three hits in the same night with Gary Lewis. And I thought the second song ought, ought to be this, not, not that one. Well, didn't matter. It, it was a huge hit, and then the next one was a huge hit, and the next one. Was a, so timing didn't mean so much to me. It was just probably a preference that I like this song better than I like that song. And then I learned later, don't allow yourself to think that way. Allow you to think of what you can control, and what you can control is your performance. Give the best you've got to give to everything you're doing, and then let, let the chips fall where they may. You know, And that was it. That's the way I felt about it. That is so interesting. To hear that, that perspective of it, that is so, so interesting. When you were doing The Partridge Family, was there an awful lot of pressure to turn around the songs very quickly? There, there was, but I never felt pressure. Because typically, in my own companies and stuff, when we were writing and producing and delivering the next morning in Chicago or something, and taking something on that that your whole career was going to come down to a, a matter of hours that you had to do something and still get it on a plane. Mm. Uh, that was pressure. This wasn't. Uh, it was for probably John because John was writing arrangements. So John would have to get together with, uh, let's say if Mike Melvoin did the, the instrumental charts, that he would get together with Mike or uh, with uh, Wes Farrell or somebody else and they would plan the write the the upfront sound of the vocal group and all that stuff that's that's on top of it. And I know at times John even had Tom help him writing because of time constraints and stuff like that. I never felt that. Mm. When the chart's ready, I'm I'm there for the session, ready to record. And and then you do the recording, and we were quick. We were quick and, and very efficient at what we did. And when you were done, you were done. You know, you'd write up the contract, put the amounts down on it and leave, go to the next session. So it was one of those things. It sounds awfully clinical, but it isn't. Uh, no. It's that, that you look at every one of these opportunities that I took when they were handed to me and 
the, the way I valued each one of them was I want this to be success because in that I will be a success. My career will go on. And my career went on until I lost my voice in, in my 60s. And something happened to my voice, uh, some kind of odd situation. But it wasn't, it wasn't a, like nodes or a vocal problem like that. It was mm. just a, a, a condition that set in where uh, I was having trouble moving my vocal cords the way I wanted to without it causing me to cough or something. And I said, what's going on? I went from... 18 hours a day in front of a mic for 40 years and having a cast iron voice that could do anything I wanted to do to suddenly I can't, uh, I can't move my vocal cords without coughing. So mm. now, and now it still shows in my speaking voice because I, I started getting hoarse easily. So yeah. it's, it was the end of a wonderful career. All I just did is say, thank you God for this wonderful career. Absolutely. <laughs> the legacy that you alone have left behind yeah, I mean, I, you walked with kings, and I, I remember I there's a story once where, but you were recording with Frank Sinatra, and he came up to you and asked you how to sing a certain yeah, piece of yeah, music. Yeah, I, we were recording, and it was probably a Western Studio One, as I recall, some something like that. And and Frank came up and says, "How does this go?" And so I just, you know, I mean, there's nothing more to it than that. How does this go? So I sang a few bars just to let him know what the melody was. And he says, okay, thanks. The first time I met him, I was, we were at Studio, Studio 3 at Western Studios on, on Sunset Boulevard. And I'm standing there trying to do the follow-up for this diamond ring. And it was three of us, and I'm doing a demo for a friend of mine, which was going to, it was called Count Me In. All right, so we're in the middle of doing this demo and the recording lights on in the hallway, but all of a sudden the door of the studio opens and you stop recording and you look up and it's Sinatra and he's standing there and he's got his uh, tuxedo on and he says, you guys using this room? And I said, uh, yes, sir. <laughs> you know, it's that guy, yes, sir. And uh, completely taken back, not even knowing what to say. And he said, okay. And the story behind that, the story behind that is he was coming down Sunset Boulevard. Nat Cole was supposed to open the, the uh, music center downtown Los Angeles. That was going to be the opening night. And Nat Cole, they found out he had throat cancer. And it turned out to be terminal on that. And he was supposed to open and couldn't do it. So Sinatra was going to fill in for him. So Sinatra's coming down Sunset Boulevard, pulls into the studio, comes in trying to loosen up his chops, get ready for the session uh, or for, for the performance, and opens the door. And there we're standing there doing uh, this demo. And that was the, the rest of the story. The interesting thing is uh, I finished the demo we gave it to uh, Snuff Garrett and Leon Russell, and that became our second uh, number one. Uh, it came right out after this diamond ring, count me in, and went right to the top of the charts with Gary Lewis. That was the second one. And then it just kept going from there. And that's what I was doing when I first met Sinatra. When we did the three tenors, I did all of the the, the, the Dodger Stadium, the uh, Europe, the whole I prepared all of that with Lala Schifrin and I had three tenors and I did it in my studios and recorded everything with three tenors 
uh, to teach Pavarotti his part because he didn't read music, but Carreras and Domingo did. But we had to do the whole thing in like 32 different languages, you know, uh, to teach Pavarotti by rote his part. I remember Lalo telling me at the time, he said, Ron, why do you do work for scale? You could charge three times scale and, and work less. And I said, Lalo, it isn't a matter of the money. It's a matter of I have a chance to work with and walk with kings. And that's what I'm doing. And I said, you're one of them. I love the experience of doing all of that. I love the experience of having John Williams walk in and say, Ron, tell him, I'm looking for 13 guys to do that. You tell him what to do because you do that better than I do. And, and have to have that, that respect in the industry to say, yeah, that's great. Thank you. It is that one word, respect. Yes, yeah. Yes. That carries so much weight and carries you through your, your, it, it your wonderful career. It, it, it's um, when I worked with John and Tom, originally, it was like I could, I dangled that carrot saying, I can have you make an X amount of money within such and such time period. Yeah. After you've done all of that, then you sit there and say, now we're talking about the pride of what we leave on that tape. We're talking about the pride of our career. You don't want to leave a bunch of junk lying around. You want to be proud of it. And so everything is not a matter of the money anymore. It's a matter of let's leave a legacy that's that's really good. Mm. That's it. There must have been a number of um, tracks when you were recording for the Partridge family that never made either the television series or were released on vinyl. And you're probably familiar with the Screen Gems records. You do yeah. them, you do a TV version, you do a record release version. But were there not some other songs that David took the lead on, such as I'm on the Road, uh -huh. which never were put out in the public domain as official releases? Do you remember any of those? I really don't. And the reason I don't 
is because my schedule was such, as I told you originally, you know, doing up to five sessions a day and sometimes more is I was running from one thing to another, to another, to another. If I did all these motion pictures and things like that, uh, Hunt for Red October, all in Russian and Dances with Wolves and Apollo 13 and all these huge hits, I never even saw them because I didn't have time. So to take any one particular project and say, yeah, I'm really inside on what they did with it afterwards. No, I'm not uh, because I didn't have any of the records and I just move on to the next session. And that was exactly the way I was uh, forced to do. It, it was a problem for my wife when we got married to, uh, 26, 27 years ago. She kept saying, well, you remember such and such, such and such. I said, no, I don't. <laughs> well, they were big. They were a big hit. And I said, yeah, I was in the studio at the time creating his. I don't know what somebody else was doing. All I can tell you is what we were doing. And we were doing almost everything that was out there. So if I wasn't doing it, I didn't know what it was. Right. It was that simple. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Where do you rate David Cassidy's voice? Oh, David was, he was perfect for the vehicle. Uh, that's the way I look at everything. You've got a demographic you're trying to reach. If I could take a second to say, okay, Gary Lewis and the Playboys, 10 straight number one records or whatever it was we did. And then Snuff said, Gary wants to change bags. He wants to change musical bags. So do me a favor, don't sing with him. And I said, oh, really? Because this was my big thing at that time. And I said, okay, for you and Leon Russell, I will not do that because he, he was going to change producers and stuff. So they did. They, that was the end of the career. That was the end of, of Gary Lewis and the Playboys, because they changed direction. The same thing happened with any number. Gary Puck at the Union Gap. Same thing happened. He wanted to change from Jerry Fuller producing him. So 10 records after doing all these number one records, Young Girl, Get Out of My Life, and Woman, Woman, all this stuff that we had done, suddenly they're going to change directions off the charts, gone. David comes in to a situation that was uh, just ideal. He steps in, blows everybody's mind because we never expected him to be as uh, all around perfect for the role as he was, both vocally and visually. David was the right person in the right gig, uh, just like I was. And so for the period of time of the Partridge family and whatever David could do after that, but that created who he was. Now, David may never have been comfortable with who he was because he was a different person than that. The reason I became a studio singer was I didn't want to be pigeonholed like that. I wanted to do Michael Jackson. I wanted to do the Partridge family. I wanted to do the Monkees. I wanted to do Sinatra. I wanted to do Dean Martin. I wanted to do uh, Streisand. I wanted to do all these different things that if somebody had pigeonholed me and said, you can only be this, this is your demographic, then it would have been very limited. But I was clever enough not to be in front, to be a part of all of that stuff because I wasn't the one they were buying. They were buying the sound, but they weren't buying me personally. It had nothing to do with my choreography or my looks or anything else. So 
that plays into a role like David's or anybody else. When you become this character, then you're almost that character for life, whether you like it or not. And I think it, with David, there was always this, this discontent over not wanting to be just Keith Partridge for the rest of his life. And that speaks volumes because uh, your demographic expects you to be that. And that's too bad. That's too bad for the artist because the artist says, well, I can't leave my demographic behind. And yet they're not following me into a different thing because that's not the music they want, period. And so it's, it's very difficult. Uh, in answering how I felt about David, I think he was the, the biggest sensation in the record industry since Elvis. And I strongly feel that, but it was limited to what it was. It was exactly what it was. You wouldn't expect him to be doing some other thing that required a whole different set of chops. Uh, it was just, this is the perfect moment for, for David and the perfect vehicle to do what he did. And nobody could have done it better. Yeah. How would you compare how his career path evolved compared to Rick Nelson? Rick, Rick Nelson, it's odd because I did Rick. I did both versions of Rick Nelson. Uh, the group oh. behind Rick, yeah, the group behind Rick Nelson in the beginning, Jerry Fuller wrote Traveling Man. So Jerry Fuller was the baritone in the group. Glenn Campbell, who was the second tenor in the group, I was top tenor, and I brought in Al Capps, who was the bass of my quartet. And so we were the background group for Rick. A few years later, when Rick's career was, was way down, because he, he again, wanted to ch change directions and, and have a different demographic he was appealing to, not bubblegum people. So his career was way down. And we were laughing about it, Jerry, because Jerry was producing Mathis and uh, Andy Williams. And he had discovered and wrote all the material for uh, Gary Puckett and Union Gap. Al was the arranger on all that stuff for Gary Puckett and Union Gap and for Mathis and, and Andy Williams. And I had got Male Singer of the Year in the studios and Glenn Campbell had Gentle on My Mind and uh, by the time I get to Phoenix come out that year and also did True Grit with John Wayne. Yeah. And so I told Glenn, I said, you know, quit chasing the bubble. You're making good money in the studios. And so he made like five million that year. So this was the background group. And we had done Baroque Nova and Classical Gas that year that won the record of the year. And so it was just like, whoa, uh, this is the background group that was backing Rick. So years later, I'm coming in and Rick's Rick did uh, a Garden Party, which was just a wonderful record. And it was a wonderful speech. Uh, uh, if he expected everybody to come in and say, do this, do this, do this, and you're stuck with doing that for the rest of your life, he didn't want that. He'd rather drive a truck, according to his Larry. Yes. And that was perfect because that, that's who Rick was. And so the next time I'm working with Rick, it's years later, and Al Cooper is producing him. And Al Cooper, is through Al Cooper that I met uh, Stevie Wonder and uh, Paul Anka and a few others that came into the sessions and stuff. And I always wondered, because Al had given me a book, I'm gonna, and, and he said, I'm going to read what he says. He says, 
Ron, thank you for bringing perfect harmony into my life. Thanks, Al. So Al had me doing all the backgrounds and stuff on his stuff. I just thought that he's a kooky guy. I don't have any time for, uh, you know, any more than going in and doing my best on the job, which I did over and over. And, and I did Rick stuff with, with Al. Then later, and it was preparing for this kind of this uh, thing I did in Palm Springs. I, I said, I better read that book. And as I'm reading it, I discovered that he did discovered and started blood, sweat and tears. I'm looking at pictures in there and I'm seeing, well, there's Dick Halligan. I did all his stuff. There's Al Cooper. I did all of his stuff. And I didn't even know him. I didn't know who they'd done. All I know is I'm in there doing their stuff for them because they called me. And I didn't realize who I'm even working with at the time. It was just not what they'd done. It was who they were with me, you know. Yeah. And that was the career. I, it was a wonderful situation of where you you were working on all these hits. It's like doing Karen Carpenter, uh, doing the Carpenters, having 70 voices for that double album. I had 70 singers on it and she died in the middle of it, you know? Uh, and so we're sitting there saying, whoa, you know? Wow. So, you know, in, in answer to your question about David, there, there's a lot of prototypes in the business that, that when people start to change their demographic or change who they wanted to be and stuff like that, that not their demographic ne necessarily didn't go with them. And so everything changed yeah. and it changed in their career. Sometimes it changed it for the better, sometimes it didn't. What do you, you know? consider your greatest professional achievement? It was probably the legacy of the people that I brought in to work with me. Uh, I brought in people that had a, a God-given gift that had sacrificed to be technically as good as they were. I understood that because that's who I was. Uh, when people would say, what was your favorite record? Well, I could point out the biggest selling record of all time at that time was uh, uh, Indian Reservation, Cherokee people uh, with, with the Raiders and Mark Lindsay singing lead. And at that time it became the biggest selling record of all time, the fastest. And uh, I had, I think it was John and Tom and me, or it, it was, I could look it up, but it was three of us doing the backgrounds on it. And it was a huge, huge record. I love the way it was written. I love the way it was done. And I can sit down and I can't point out and say this is my favorite recording of all time mm. because I don't have one. It's like having a hundred kids and saying, let's talk about two of them. <laughs> right. I, don't, I don't think you can do that. You know, uh, the effort was I'm doing my best here, gang. And if you're doing your best, and you're proud of the work that you left on the tape, and you're proud of the results that it had, then you reach, reach the people you were trying to reach. Mm. And it's not always the same people. But God gave us enough talent to, to be aware of all these different demographics and what they liked and how to reach them, and, and we did that. Yes. Otherwise, we'd have been a single artist.
that was it. Is there any one life lesson from your job that has taught you something that perhaps everyone could learn from? I wish I could answer that easily. <laughs> I think the the main thing that I I always felt when people would say, if you had it to do over, what would you do differently? All I know is the way I was, the way I was geared, the way I was trained is I had the opportunity of whatever was happening now. Whatever happening now, I wanted to give the best I had to give to. If I gave the best I had to give with the knowledge that I had and the ability that I had and everything I had in that now, then you can look at it down the line and say, uh, would you do that the same way? And the answer is yes, of course I would, because I was only operating from what I knew and what I had, the gifts that I had. I was doing the best I knew how. Was it always great? Not necessarily, but the effort was. The effort was. And the beautiful part of our career, and when I speak our, it's because I'm never alone in this. Uh, it's all the people that I worked with. I felt like Patton. I'm, fr I'm in front of the army, but everybody's right there with me. And they're 100% supportive of what I'm trying to do. And so all I can say is, well, the bottom line, the end result is that we loved each other. We loved the experience. We loved the success that we enjoyed as anonymous as, as it was. Uh, because we were in there with people that we love to be with, and we were in there doing projects that were successful, and the and the and the great the great unwashed public was endorsing our work, and that was that was the the best thing that you could expect out of stuff. So, do I have any words of genius other than giving the best you got to do and try to love what you do? and try to love the people you do it with, give the best you've got to give and uh, operate from the knowledge that you have and never look back on it, just, just keep going. That's it. Wise words indeed. What motivates you today? Oh, you know what? <laughs> I, have, I, I have a competitive nature uh, that uh, about three years ago, right now, I'll be 85 this year, I'm 84. And right now, the, a lot of my peers are gone. I've seen some of the people that I did stood side by side with that can't remember anything, that have problems and all that stuff. I thank God for the health that I enjoy, uh, for the uh, individual that, that, that I have become over my life. Uh, that I, I feel proud of the effort that I've made, but I feel very healthy. And I feel that, that the motivation, once I couldn't sing anymore, I thank God for the, for the gifts, uh, for the career. And then I started competing like mad in, in my golf. And about three years ago, I won the, the seniors tournament at, at Mission Hills Country Club. And I won uh, the match play tournament. And I won a few other things. And I, I'm still looked at as by a lot of people like 
do you ever do lose to anybody your age? And I said, I don't meet a lot of people my age. <laughs> but no, the, the, the simple answer is, I guess that competitive nature within me to always trying to be the best, always trying to give the best you got to give goes across. Uh, when I started my own company, for instance, I, I, I could have told you at the time my feelings about my singing uh, career and my singing career. And this was mid 40s when I started my own companies and my singing career. I thought, I, I hope nobody understands that I don't know what I'm doing. I hope nobody understands how lucky I am, uh, how gifted I, I am, and that nobody understands how scared the, the feelings that I don't know quite what I'm doing. I'm really a lucky guy. Okay. Mm. Mm. I, I had those feelings. Once I started my own company, and the first thing I did won Clio Awards and became uh, number one in the country. Uh, won the, the, the top awards in the business as the best thing. And I did that in about a half hour's worth of work. We wrote something, I produced it, sent it to Chicago, and it became the number one commercial of the year. And when it when it came out, everything started. All of that career started and nobody knew who we were when I put my company together because yeah. we were anonymous. And so when I put the company together, I wrote things for it. I did everything and produced it. And it came out and it came out just like way better than what the industry was offering. So within two years, I had built four studios in Hollywood for my own work and all this stuff. And then I built this uh, catalog company for, for backing uh, motion pictures and television and all this stuff. And I ended up selling that publishing company to Universal, which became the biggest in the world. Very same company, Killer Tracks, came out of my company, Killer Music. And, you know, the odd thing is when all that started happening, I had to reflect back and say, you know, maybe I wasn't just lucky. Maybe I was actually good because I crossed careers from a, from a singer into directing, producing, doing all that stuff and, and, and doing the top work in the world, you know, and sit there and say, well, maybe, maybe there's uh, something there a little deeper than just luck. Who knows? There certainly is. It's, it's called talent, Ron. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when you look back at the Partridge family music, it was considered then bubblegum but it was top-notch bubblegum. Yes. Can you now look back, listen to it, and reflect and say, this really is music that is worthy of people revisiting? When my voice stopped, I was doing um, Snow Falling on Cedars at the time, and my voice gave up. And I, I thought, well, if this is it, thank you, God, very much for this wonderful career. And now... I will put all this stuff down that I never, I was moving too fast to ever listen to, to ever reflect on, to just keep moving. Now, I was putting it into a computer and I was listening to it. And this, you'd have to slap the smile off my face because I was listening to the work that we had done in all these different hits of my own effort in every one of reliving that. Uh, and saying this is this is keeping me alive. This whole 
reliving of my career that will never change. I can't do it again. Music will never be in the same place. But as I'm listening to it, I'm intensely proud of the effort that is there. I'm intensely proud of the music that I'm hearing uh, because I don't care what the bag is. And when I say musical bag, I mean they're very different. If you, if you take the chipmunks here and then you take on the other end of the spectrum, the three tenors, every one of them is, my God, is a different bag. And yet I'm intensely proud of every one of them. And I listen to them and I say, boy, God, that's good work. And that's a feeling that I had once I was able to stop running, once I was able to stop doing and realized that I never had a chance to listen to this. I never had a chance to do this. Uh, do I think that some things show off your talent better than others? Yeah, I do. But, but at the same time, uh, every one of them was done for a, a particular reason. And that reason was accomplished by what we did. And I'm listening to it and I'm thinking, that's good work. Because I know who we're trying to reach. And we're reaching me. We're reaching me because I'm judging what we did and saying, uh, if we were back there, could we be doing this better? No, no. It, I've told people before, they said, well, would you have done it better than... I said, no. If I could have done it better, I'd still be standing there trying to do it better. We don't move on until it's where we think it should be. And we did it and move on. And now I look back on it because I have no choice. I look back on it and I say, God, that's good work. That's really good work. It mattered only that yeah, we were we were all there down the line. I always felt like, you know, if you wanted more personal experience with uh, David, you would talk to John because John would have to go do the background arrangements and stuff like that, yes. which gets you more involved in the arranging. So that's yes. it. Have you kept in touch with the other members of your group? I, I just hit Jackie came down to watch my my uh, presentation a couple of weeks ago and Sally came down John and Tom because Tom became went to New York and then he then he came back out here and then he went here and went there and, and became more of a nomad uh, the uh, John who went to with the uh, with Janet to uh, Branson and has been back there ever since. John and I have tried to remain in contact. John doesn't stay in contact as well as he should. He wrote me an apology uh, <laughs> saying that he got things that I'd sent to him a couple of years before and he finally opened them. You know, he, John, John and I were probably as close as you can get at working. And the same thing with Tom. Mm -hmm. When John wasn't available, I was using Tom. Uh, all of our Hugo Montenegro stuff and all that stuff, it was a dynamic guys group that would just go in and just sight read whatever is in front of them just knock it out you know and then move on to the next thing because even when tom was working with me tom would be going up to try to pitch a song that he did on a session right. and I'd, I'd have to sit down to tom and say don't do that we're here as singers we're not here to get our name on the label we're not here to uh, uh to try to open up another door or, uh, you know to do this or that you can do that on your own time i wanted to be that individual that I was that objective singer that that was it I didn't want to be the songwriter 
I didn't want to be any more than that. And it just evolved into my own companies where I had to do it all. You'd been everywhere. You'd worn the T-shirt. You knew exactly yeah, what exactly. was required. Yeah, exactly. But I'll tell you the first time you do it on your own, after all the years of successes and everything else, the pressure of saying, I'm looking around and there's nobody here but me. Yeah. There's nobody taking him out to dinner afterwards. There's nobody uh, wine and dining. Somebody. There's nobody. It's just me. And I would say, oh, God, I don't want to fail. I don't want to fail. And then the idea, like, if I can't do it, who in the hell can? Mm -hmm. And then that knowledge says, okay, let's just relax and do a good job here. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no difference than when you were working for somebody else, except you're working for yourself. But the same knowledge is there. When you're working for somebody else, the same knowledge is there. You're working for yourself. Because if you don't do a good job, you're not even going to be back for somebody else. So right now, just do the best you can. Luckily, I think um, God may, gave me a little more ability to handle things that artistic people don't handle. Uh, normally. So it allowed me to, uh, to be an extension of all of this. It allowed me to take care of things, uh, to handle things in a business-like manner that other people uh, came in to do their best the same way I came in to do my best, except it allowed me to, to carry it all the way through into, into a one-stop where other people said, no, I, you know, I sang this song, that was it. But you've got the same work ethic as Jimmy Cagney. He said exactly the same thing in interviews. Oh, really? Yeah. And <laughs> it was like, I just went in and did a job. And yeah. But it's a special job. And I'm going to borrow a line from Butch Cassidy to, uh, to, to close up with. No one now who understands the history of pop music is going to say, who are those guys? <laughs> I know, I know that line. That when my company came out, that's what suddenly we were winning all these awards. People were saying that across the country. Who are those guys? You know, because we had done it behind the scenes. Now, wham! In your face. Who are those guys? And I don't know how many times. There's another movie that I did. In terms of endearment, I wanted to use a line in there and say. 20 seconds from a clean getaway. <laughs> yeah. Once more, when something has gone wrong, I've just, I've looked at it and said, 20 seconds from a clean getaway. <laughs> and I love those two lines of all the pictures I did. Yeah, oh, you. it's just brilliant. Oh, Ron, I have had the most wonderful couple of hours in your company, hearing your stories and learning so much about you and what it was like working in the studio with the greats of music. Thank you. It's been fabulous. Yeah, I could probably take two hours just giving you a list of who those people were I worked with and what what the, the hits were. Uh, it becomes uh, secondary because yeah. basically the the overall impact of a career and of the and the highlights is all we can cover at this time. I'm going to urge everyone to look into your history and to look at the songs that you've been involved with because it'll just blow people's minds. 
they won't realise that their favourite songs from the last 60 years, any decade, you, you will have some involvement. Yeah. We're the soundtrack of a lot of people's lives. The one thing I want to do, uh, because technically I want somebody to show me how to go into Wikipedia and correct it. <laughs> I what I want to do is I want to go in there and set the record straight because I didn't put any of that stuff in there and there's a lot of things that are wrong and I just look at it and say there's so much right to put in there that uh, I would certainly like to go in and correct the wrong only because of the people involved I love the people involved and they should be given credit for what they did not for what somebody else did and stuff like that. So that's the way I look at it sometimes saying, yeah, there's there's some glory in there, but I'd like to make it right too. Well, there's your next project. Yes. You are a perfectionist. You're going to perfect, <laughs> make this perfection too. Well, thank you, Louise, very much for all of your tolerance and putting up with me for a couple of It's hours. not tolerance. I have just been absorbed and learning about the part in history that you played. It's so important that this is recorded and that it's it's out there for people to absorb and digest and research and understand and be educated more about yeah. what really happened. Thank you. I yeah. appreciate it. When are you Over. next out on the golf course? I took the day off so I could talk with you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. All goes back to teaching, doesn't it? Yes. It all goes back to being a coach. I think so. I think my, my dad finally came came to that conclusion, but I, I think when I signed with Capital, he was very disappointed that I hadn't continued on to become a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> but you would have been the top doctor. <laughs> you would have been a very competitive doctor. Oh, yes, a very competitive doctor. Thank you very much for today. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. It'll be your lunchtime now. <laughs> I'm not worried about eating. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I hope we have the opportunity to talk again one day soon. Okay, we'll make that happen, Louise. Yeah, it's been fabulous, Ron. Okay, I don't want to leave your side. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. What a compliment. I, I've been drinking coffee the entire time we've been talking. I feel nature calling me in another direction. Well, I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I've gone through a fair bit of water here. so. <laughs> but anyway, lovely. Okay. Thank you very much again for your, your time and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you very much. I'll go say hello to my lovely wife. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Louise. Everyone loves a king of the sea. Ever so kind and gentle is he. Tricks he will do when children are near. And how they laugh when he's near. They call him Flipper, Flipper, faster than life. Star Spangled Night
stopped Where did all the happy people go? I know they were there Who are those guys?